Welcome to Lincoln. We're a city smack dab in the middle of the country. We're a city that's home to Nebraska's state government, the University of Nebraska, and a host of thriving businesses. We're a city that's loaded with things to do, places to go, and friendly people to meet. This podcast, simply called Lincoln, is designed to help you get to know the people of Lincoln. Each episode will feature another of our residents just talking about who they are, what they do, and how they got here. I'm Randy Bretz, and joining me for these conversations is Marilyn Moore. The people of Lincoln make this community special. We want you to get to know them. We hope you'll enjoy listening to these conversations as much as we have putting them together. And now, let's meet someone who makes Lincoln their home. There are some amazing, fascinating people in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, some of them maybe have lived in another state or two. And then there are those that I've gotten to know that live have lived in all parts of the world. And one of our, our guests today is Susan Wood. Susan grew up in Lincoln and uh, worked in Africa. And oh, I'm going to let her tell her story. So... <laughs> Tell me, tell me, Susan, uh, where you've lived, and I don't know if we want to go into your whole resume, but uh. right. Well, I grew up in Lincoln, and I went to undergraduate school here and graduate school out east. And I, when I was living in Washington D.C., uh, I started working with USAID, the Agency for International Development. Mm-hmm. And that was in the 80s, and uh, I started working as a creative director on some really interesting development projects, um, cultural and environmental resource management projects, and uh, that was really a that was really a an interesting turning point for me because I realized there's you know there's there's more to the world than art, and there's um, more to the world than what we Americans see. The Central America in the 80s was a political um, hairball. Mm -hmm. So I came back and got another graduate degree in business from from Georgetown, and that really positioned me to get some more interesting jobs uh, with USAID and the World Bank. And for people who don't know about these organizations, the World Bank is a is a um, is a finance development finance. Bank. They they issue loans. Most of the loans are forgiven, but those loans are given to developing countries, mm-hmm. and they're aligned with United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So you know, at a really young age, I just was really you know just sort of taken with the the world's wicked issues and what I could do to um, you know try to help. So in in my career, I guess I started. Overseas, I lived in Honduras and Belize, and then I lived in, well, I I lived in Jordan where I was an official delegate at the peace talks between Jordan and Israel. So, you know, when you're in these international development positions, you can do some really fascinating things. Um, then, um, gosh, I mean, just name name a continent, and I've probably lived <laughs> there. <laughs> but, but, you know, I don't want to be one of those people who's just, scratching their belly and talking about Korea. But I, I um, you know, I really pretty much lived everywhere. I think some of the anchor cities and countries where I've spent a considerable amount of time are 
Tunisia. I was there during the Arab Spring. That was really fascinating, and I'd love to share some insights on that. And then, um, and then after Tunisia, I worked in Sweden as the Deputy Secretary General for a UN Permanent Observer Organization in Stockholm, and that was another interesting uh, job. Very interesting. Um, work and it ended in a spectacularly strange way but uh, <laughs> which kind of sent me back to Lincoln but um, yeah I've just I've lived all over the world and I've um, and I've focused primarily on international law and, and diplomacy and constitution building as my day job but as um, as a person I've always thought of myself as an artist and I've always been an artist and so wherever I've been I've done art and have had to the extent that I've had the time to do it, I've had exhibits in different places. So what I'm doing now here back in Lincoln, um, I'm still finding my footing, but um, I'm actually working on a body of work uh, that is about democracy. It's really a series of flags that I'm creating for an exhibit that will be coming up in the next year in Stockholm. That's kind of a long-winded answer. So I hope answer. you can share a picture of that with me, and yeah. I'll put it on the, with yeah. your interview so people can see what you're Absolutely. working on. Absolutely. Uh, I have not traveled nearly to the extent that you have, and I've been in, I think, five different countries. But my observation is that no matter where you are, whether you're, what color your skin is, what your language is, people have kind of the same basic things that they want in life. Would you talk about that a little bit? Boy, I could not agree with you more. Um, and this is where I think coming from the Midwest has been helpful to me. Um, you know, I didn't grow up in a family that was that was wealthy or 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 diplomatic. I've just grown up with Midwestern values, and you know, I didn't start I didn't start in the international arena at the top of the heap. And so I've always worked with people, poor, poor people. And my work has primarily been to develop campaigns to change behavior. And in, you know, in, in public health, people will talk about social marketing and they'll talk about the needs and greeds and requirements of poor people. And they make these assumptions that if you're poor, you are thus. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a sweeping generalization. And I've always rejected that because, you know, I've done a lot of field work and I've done a lot of focus testing with people. And I really think we are exactly the same. Not Maybe not exactly, but I think, you know, as a woman, we all want the same things. We all want to look good. We want to feel good. We want our children to be healthy. We want them to go to school. Um, and then we need to boil it down to really specific things. Like in my work, we would have things like if you're going to try to change behavior in a certain area, like, oh, encourage more women to become community health workers. We would give them incentives. <laughs> and oftentimes the UN client would say, oh, you know, all they need is a bag of UN cookies. So these are these horrible tasting things that <laughs> nobody wants to eat. And they have all this nutrition in them. <laughs> And, and I'd say, no, they don't want that. They want hand lotion, and they want all the stuff that I'm wearing, you know. That, mm. And so I know that sounds really shallow, but I just, I, I thought that for years. I'm 59. I've been doing this since I was 29. And I've always felt 
I couldn't agree with you more, Randy, that we really do want the same things. And well, the world we, we is, want a nice place to live. We want a nice place we to live. Food. Yeah. And and connections, our family connections, friends, and, and yeah. whatever. And we want to be respected. You know, nobody wants to feel they're on the receiving end of, of aid because they're dumb. Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know, talk to people as if they have a... A dog in the game. I mean, they, they really do. And, you know, you can learn from them. I, I think sometimes I wake up here in Lincoln and think, have I ever done anything that's actually helped anybody? Because I've learned so much from the people I have have been with. Um, I'm sure I have. I know I have. But, the, you know, in the broader picture, I think one thing people can learn or people should learn as early as possible is is in international development, you're just... You're just one of the players. You're not there as a as a as a person who's smarter than anybody else. If that's making any sense. I was at a luncheon oh, a week or so ago, uh, and the Secretary of State of Nebraska, John Gale, was right. there. He won an award for uh, being the Nebraska's, I think, chief diplomat to international visitors, and. Uh, among his comments, something that really hit home with me, he said, I think there are two kinds of international relations. You got the country versus country. He said, those are like the Teutonic plates of the earth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just really a hard thing to move and change. Mm-hmm. He said, but you have the individual connections, which I think is where you've worked most of your of your time. Um, I, yes and no. I, um in Tunisia, I worked for the Infrastructure Consortium for Africa, which is a very high-level uh, G was then G8, um, mm. G9 organization, and we we got all the G8, G9, G20 countries together to agree on how much was going to be invested in infrastructure in Africa. So that was very high. I, okay, been to that G8. would be a Tetonic kind that of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and um, I really did have to you know, put on a different hat, if you will, and talk in a very sort of high-level way, which is, which is fine. Um, and then the last job in Stockholm was very high-level. And, uh, you know, my boss was the former prime minister to Belgium, and we all sat at tables every single day with a microphone in front of us pushing for our turn to speak. And and they were, we were a membership organization of, of member countries. And... Um, so I can play in that arena, but it it it, uh, it isn't my favorite space to be in. Um, I, I felt like um, it's important to be able to do both; otherwise, you're not really very good. But um, yeah, but but most of the time, and most of the work I've really enjoyed has been in the field where you can really gather how people feel, particularly when it comes to democracy. Um, that's my space. Um, Tell us, tell us a story from that, uh, from that experience in the field. Yeah, figuring out how people feel. Yeah, um, in the democracy space. To yeah, talk talk about that. To yeah, us. so so I got a, a graduate degree in international law and diplomacy with a focus on constitution building, and for the last fifteen years, I've been doing comparative analysis and constitutions, and it's very geeky. But uh, anyway, um, when I 
I thought, okay, I'll put that aside because those jobs don't come up very much. And then I took this position as the director of communications at the African Development Bank, another high-level job. Mm -hmm. And that's where the I, I, uh, Infrastructure Consortium for Africa is located. So we arrived there, my partner and I arrived there, three days before the start of the Arab Spring. <laughs> <laughs> Great timing. Great timing. <laughs> Not that you knew it at the moment. Yeah. But. And, you know, my partner is a wonderful man. He was born in Iran, and he lived through the Iranian Revolution, so he was in a panic. He has seen a revolution go sideways, whereas I thought, wow, this is great. You know, it was a brutal dictator, and so um, not to belabor this, but this is such an interesting issue. So, so there I was as this communications director at the African Development Bank. We were the only big organ nonprofit organization in the country, and so we were seconded, that's a fancy word for just given over, to the government of Tunisia because so they so they, they kick out the brutal dictator, Ben Ali. Ten million people arrive in Tunisia and just yell, Degage, which means get out, and he leaves, and then what? As they say in French, après la révolution, alors quoi? After the revolution, then what? Yeah. And so we, we were living in a country that had no <laughs> government. Can you imagine? Can you imagine I living can't like imagine. just nothing? But people were still going to work. Okay. So, you know, I got seconded to the Ministry of, of well, it was youth and, youth and outreach, but basically all the communications things. So I'll just speed through this because I was there for a long time. But um, the f f f free and fair elections were held a year later. And the, the Salafist, which is a very moderate Islamic party, was elected. And free and fair. And there were other people in parliament that were secular. Uh, but, the, but the general feeling among the, among the people in Tunisia was, oh, my God, we do not want to be... Iran. We do not want to have a, a, a Muslim, uh, and nothing against Islam, but we don't want to be a religious state. And meanwhile, this Salafist party, most of these people had been in jail because it was illegal to be doing anything under the brutal dictator. They actually said, this leader actually said, seven months into his regime, hey, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to govern. Can you imagine anybody doing that? What now? an honest statement. <laughs> we don't we don't know how to govern and we want to step down and we are asking for technical assistance from the rest of the world. So I I still get goosebumps when mm -hmm. I talk about this because you know, this happened so quietly. I don't think the rest of the world was really paying attention. Hello. Um, they got they got technical assistance and then then I ended up basically being totally seconded out of the bank to work with this group called the, um, well, there's a fancy French word for it, but the the Tunisian um, dial quartet dialogue. Funny name. But anyway, all we did was outreach, just basically do these what we call charrettes, these, these meetings around the country to have people talk about how they felt, what kind of constitution they wanted, how do they feel about women's rights, what, you know, how do they feel about the role of Islam, blah, 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 so that, so that the country, all I did was facilitate, I didn't, I just facilitated these things, meaning I would set up the place, greet people, but their country is their thing, but, so they started rewriting a constitution, and their constitution actually 
has a place for a third gender in it. It's so mm. progressive. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just that's one of the stories that I'm just so thrilled about. But that work in Tunisia really caught the eye of the Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance in Stockholm. And then I was asked to to go to Stockholm and be their head of communications and deputy secretary general. And that was very interesting, but whoa, very bureaucratic hairball over there. But um, <laughs> and, and and rather corrupt too. I ended up blowing the whistle, which is a whole other story. But um, you know, within IDEA, the Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, we had member countries who believed in democracy and IDEA. Um, believes in this notion that democracies all don't all look alike and I agree uh, they can one democracy can look like one thing and one democracy can look like another but there are there are common parts you know um, participation of all members in the community accountability in other words the press a representation there's enough representation in government and people participating. Uh, transparency and solidarity that people want this government so parts of 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 a democracy those parts um so you know i've I've just seen a lot and you know the last thing i did at idea was go to myanmar i met with Aung san sushi and let's just say i'm not surprised at the trouble that she's in Mm. she um you know like a lot of like a lot of politicians I don't think I've ever met a politician or a leader that doesn't have a strong ego drive, and she has a very strong ego mm-hmm. drive. So if you're if you're following the news, she's she's um, she's been turning a blind eye to some violent abuse toward um, Muslim members of her of her country. Um, so yeah, I've, I've just I've just seen a lot, and I think it's really interesting now as we whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. I think the United States is in a very very funny space right now with a leader who um, has such a different style and has a, such a different interpretation of his role as a as a president. So you grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of an idyllic kind of a place to live. And then you've traveled the world and, and you know, not just dropped in for a day or two, but been there for months and sometimes years. Give me your general feeling about the situation in the world today. Is, uh, is it closer to Lincoln than most of us realize, or is it uh, no. all we see on the news is pretty much negative? You mean is the world like Lincoln, or is Lincoln like the world? Or uh, what, what's the situation in the rest of the world? I mean, I I feel like here in Lincoln we have a pretty comfortable life. Well, I'm a very hopeful person, so I think there's always hope. But I think I see these trends that are terrifying. I mean, um, my mom is Swedish, so I really love Sweden. I speak Swedish, and and uh, it's a country that's known for being extremely tolerant and, you know, open. Sweden almost had a very vicious fascist party come into office in its last election. Um, You know, and in Belgium, another country that isn't really known for being 
clear and transparent is also in trouble. Um, I, I think the world is really is really ha- facing some problems. I, I really do I, in terms of democracy, and I think in terms of leadership. But I I'm hopeful because you know I'm 59. We don't have kids, but. Now that I'm I'm really slowing down and I'm not working at a thousand miles an hour, I see these smart young students and young people here, who whether they're Republican, whether they're Democrat, they really want a different kind of life. And I th- I think it's going to take that generation to step forward and take leadership roles. I think we're going to see a whole different kind of life. I saw that. I saw that in Sweden, too, when I was facilitating meetings throughout Europe, that there are young people who, uh, uh, you know, you can say whatever you want about millennials, but these are not dumb people. And I think I think the younger generation is is really going to have to take the lead. Uh, that sounds really like I give up. I don't give up, but mm-hmm. I look at I look at what's happening in our country, and I think... You know, we we have a democracy that has to have checks and balances, and it can't all be an executive power. And but that trend isn't just American; that trend is all over the world. Yeah, I hear about it in Brazil. Yeah, in Brazil, and yeah. So it's not just our own leader. Um, but what can we as individuals do? Well, I think I think one, we can stop fighting with each other. I think we can do what we're doing now, which is um, really sit down and talk to each other. I, I really I really do believe that. Whoever, I don't believe that if you voted for Trump, you're a fascist. I think that, you know, most people, like we started this interview, most people want the same things. And so if we can figure out how do we get the same things and, and, and get back to some sort of peaceful, if we were ever there, I think we were, get back to some kind of peaceful way of existing, that would be great. Instead do, you, of, do you think that there's more hope for that uh, with individuals interacting or with governments interacting? I think it's got to be individuals. I, I don't see how governments are going to... I mean, ugh, I think governments interacting right now are just, you know, kind of pitting pitting their positions against each other. And, and I'm talking as someone who has been at four G8 conferences, mm-hmm. ne- never as a representative, but as someone who's backing up and giving giving talking notes. But, you know, you can't only do so much. You've you got to clap for the boss and clap, you know. Um, I think it's got to be individuals. And individuals will set policy. It really has to be individuals. Susan, yeah. I'm struck by your um, international global perspective, which has developed over the the 30 years, as you said, from 29 to 59, that you've been doing this work. And I'm curious, um, what led you into that first international experience? I know you said you worked for USAID. Um, how did you, how, how did you get from undergraduate work in Lincoln, Nebraska to um, an international perspective? Well, I've all, uh, have you always had that? Was yes, that, was yes. that part of your uh, part uh, of your family? It is part of my family. My mom is Swedish, um, and I had an older brother who 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 died in a car accident when I was fifteen. But he had spent the last years of his life in Amsterdam and traveling the world. Okay. 
And and then we always went to Europe and we always went to Sweden and we always, so we've always been, um, and the conversations at the dinner table were never about gossip. They were always about bigger, broader issues and what can we do and, um, you know, I was raised Catholic when the Second Vatican's mandate was was very much like rotary service over self, mm-hmm. you know. What can you do? How can you do? So so I, when I got my undergraduate degree, I wasn't thinking, okay, I'm going to spring from this painting class to, you know, going to Honduras. But I always sort of knew I would wiggle my way into it, not necessarily wiggle, but mm-hmm. I mean, I went to Washington, D.C. so I could be in the space where this stuff was going on. Um, so, yeah, I always wanted to do it. But I have to say I've always I've always been sort of fortunate in my trajectory to get places or maybe just focused, I, I, I guess. Talk about how your art weaves through all of these experiences. My art is informed and inspired by geopolitical issues. So um, if you see it, and I'll send you some images of it, it really does, you know, I, I can paint a tree, I can paint a portrait, <laughs> but these, for the last 20 years, I keep sitting down here, just paint this cup, come on, just paint this cup, and then what comes up, it's, Not you know, it's, 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 you know, female genital mutilation and, you know, you know, Ruhani, and it's just a mess of stuff all over the place. And so I've just let it be. Um, and uh, because I've been traveling so much, and really in the last 10 years, well, let me just back up. I've Washington, D.C. was my base. So even if I lived somewhere for three years, I kept a condo in Washington, D.C. And I also kept a studio on the grounds of the Franciscan Monastery. So when I was done with my work, I would just go there and do a bunch of work. And then I would always do work, but we don't have any kids, so that was my thing to do. Um, I would either paint or sew. And when I got to Tunisia seven years ago, watching that country fall apart, but it's also so beautiful, one of the first things that struck me was, you know, when the government folds, there are these visual things that change. Like, you know, that's as we have flags all over every city. I never really noticed it until I went to Tunisia. But if nobody can afford to replace them, those fat flags get really torn and tethered. And so I just started thinking about, you know, flags and what they really mean and how how important they are to people. It's just a piece of cloth that people were really thinking about. So anyway, I started doing textile work. And then that basically needle pointy kind of things. And that work was easy to carry with me when I would go on missions. And now it's taken on a whole life of its own because I'm actually making these flags. And I think I'm, I'm making basically 17 flags, which are the 17 UN develop, International Sustainable Development Goals. It's going to take me 100 years to finish these. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must have a way in mind to speed that up because well, I, I don't think... I don't know. <laughs> just, I might get three done. <laughs> and then just sort of draw the rest. But... Um, yeah, I'm I'm a conceptual artist. I really I really sort of figured that out. I'll I'll use whatever medium is necessary, but what really drives my work is um, geopolitical issues. And unfortunately, I haven't really picked. I can't really zero in on one because I've seen so much. So my work sort of presents the whole thing. So now you've been back in Lincoln for what a year or so? No, two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. yeah. And. 
How have you re-engaged with this community through the political side of it, the art side of it, the well, first, some other dimension? At first, I had to just, you know, I I I got here and I found out I had cancer, mm-hmm. and so I had to just deal with that, Absolutely. and and that was just go back and forth to the doctor. And now the cancer's stable, thank yes. God. And so, um, yeah, I, I thought, well, I and then I made the decision I'm not going back into that feel permanently. I'll, I'll do some other projects from time to time. So I really just took these simple steps, you know, just thought, I, what is an organization that I believe in? My grandfather was a Rotarian. I'll become a member of Rotary, and that's how I met Randy. I just love being a member of Rotary. Um, and then, um, you know, I have been involved in the art community. I was the gallery director at Lux for about nine months. That was interesting. Um, I got you know way ahead of their goals, and but I'm very proud of my work there. Um, and and now I'm just consulting for the World Bank and just doing a bit of writing and and trying to get more up to speed with my obligations at Rotary. And um, we'll see. And you're babysitting a little boy next door now and then. <laughs> I am babysitting a little boy next door. <laughs> yeah, there's a little kid next. Yeah, see, there are these things you don't get to do when you're flying at 100 million miles an hour. I have a neighbor who who knows I'm there, and she has this hilarious two-year-old son who hears, I'm sorry to digress, but he came over yesterday. Uh, he wants to be a Boy Scout, but he's only three, right? <laughs> so he said, I, have, I, I want to do an interview because I want to get this badge. And I said, okay, Perry, what do you want to ask me? And he said, he sat down on the couch, folded his legs, and said, um, how much do you weigh? <laughs> a great interviewee <laughs> question. Good question, Perry. So I'm I'm just enjoying these little things, you know, and and I have nieces and nephews, and they've got kids, and so I'm just, you know, I. Ramin and I love cooking dinner for friends. We're just we're just enjoying life. Now we haven't yeah. talked about Ramin. <gasps> yeah. He's he's a nice guy. Well, he's in Iran now. But I met Ramin uh, 20 years ago in Washington, D.C., after I'd come back from Palestine. And um, I just met him on the sidewalk. (laughs) I literally did. And he... um, He's a um, he's very much an America loving American. He's been a U.S. citizen for th- thirty years, and he left shortly after his his military duty. Um, he was conscripted into the army and served at the front lines against Iraq. Mm. So he's seen horrible horrible things, but you'd never know it because he is the most peaceful, gentle soul. I mean, he really is like Charlie Brown. But he um, he's now in the carpet business and. Uh, when when I moved back from Sweden, he was he was not with me. He was in Washington, and I thought, oh God, are we going to really land? Is how's he going to like it here? He loves Lincoln. He loves 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 Lincoln, and Lincoln loves him. So he's got this carpet business where he's selling carpets and cleaning carpets. And now I'm running into people who ask me if I've ever met this guy called Ramin, and I was, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, hello. <laughs> hello. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and then when we got here, uh, the newspaper did this beautiful article about him called A Welcome Edition. And, you know, he's just a really sensible guy, but he really had tears in his eyes when he saw that news article. And and that article is like two years old, and people come into his shop and say, I read, I still have that article. Mm. So, um, yeah, he's he's actually 
we're both happy, but I'd say he's really happy. He's in Iran now, and he keeps calling and asking about the football scores. And, <laughs> you know, he's he's wearing his Nebraska volleyball shirt wherever he goes, and he'll be back in a few weeks. So, so Susan, uh, just a couple of other questions I want to ask you. Uh, first of all, you have encountered people all over the world. And now they, you say, I, you know, I'm back in my home community of Lincoln, Nebraska, and they go, where is that? What do you tell them about Lincoln? Oh, you know, I think most people who know me know that I've always loved Lincoln, so nobody's really saying, what are you doing in Lincoln? Um, when I got here, I had cancer, and I sent out this big missive, and all my friends sent money and help, and, and I think all of them are just happy that I'm in a place that I love. So... You know, really, we love our stereotypes, right? It helps us frame the world. Lincoln is nothing. Nebraska is not. Well, that's not true. Most of my friends are in international development. And then I have friends in Washington, D.C., and then a few odd birds who, who will say silly things like that, but who cares? I mean, mm -hmm. I think most people are aware that, um, you know, Nebraska is a politically red state, and if they're really not familiar with me at all, that's what they might think about. But my friends know that uh, I love this I love this city because it, it is a cultural city. You can do anything you want. Um, and I've been talking about it everywhere. I've always been a very, very big fan. I mean, everybody knows I love Nebraska. I've, you can ask anyone in Tunisia. They're happy that I'm here. Um, in fact, I talked with my friend Moez in Tunis yesterday, and he said, I want to go to Nebraska now. And I said, well, I don't know if he'll get a visa, but okay, why do you want to be here? And he said, I just love the idea. I actually said, I love the idea of owning a coffee shop, being a painter, and being able to run for office. All, you know, like, uh, you know. That can happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that like, we don't have, I, mean, I might be idealizing, but we don't have these big hang-ups about, who, like, you know, your pedigree. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, again, I know I'm romanticizing it, but I really, I really believe it. I mean, I'm sitting amongst people who are living that. And so, um, yeah, I don't really have friends that are asking, what the hell are you doing there? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Most I, people I, say, can, when can I come? And when it's not freezing. Well, well Lincoln <laughs> is a very welcoming city. It is. Um, except sometimes when the weather's cold. It, you know, it yeah. kind of turns a cold shoulder. Um, I know you love Lincoln. Marilyn loves Lincoln. I love Lincoln. Uh, let me ask you to complete one, one little simple sentence. Uh, Lincoln would be better if... I think... So we've just talked about I love Lincoln. I think Lincoln would be better if we weren't always promoting it like this, if, if you will. I think we need to know that um, we can accept ideas from outside of Lincoln. There are you know, there are other people and other places, and so I think we could be better. We're proud of our diversity. We're far proud of our refugee processing center. But you know, there's this expression: uh, diversity is being invited to the party, but inclusion is being asked to dance. Mm -hmm. We aren't really that inclusive yet. 
you know, and I think we could, we would be better. We would be really stronger if we were really more inclusive. And, and that will come. That will absolutely come. Um, yeah. Appreciate the time. You're welcome. Thanks for listening in as we talk with someone who helps make Lincoln special. If you live here, drop us a note and let us know what you think about Lincoln. If you've moved away, well, we'd love to welcome you back. And if you've only heard about or visited Lincoln, we just know you'd love it here. Join us again and catch someone from Lincoln talking about why they love Lincoln and why you should too.